Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Happy sunny day. Feels great. Let's pray. Father, would you just thank you so much for who you are? We recognize that you are the God of rest. And so we, we just come before you as restless people in need of your gracious welcome and invitation to, to rest in you. So I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would open up the words that you spoke, that you would speak them afresh today in our hearts. And would you help us? Would you say to our souls that it is well? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not good at resting. And here's what I mean. Sure, I can definitely lay down and sleep. I don't tend to have uh, sleep issues. I don't have insomnia. Um, I can take time off the job. I like sitting down. I like reading you know, a good book or two or three. But I do deal with unrest of soul. You know, I face anxieties and inner restlessness, uncertainties. I have a hard time feeling at, at peace, feeling whole. I tend to get discouraged easy. I can get depressed easy. So that's what I mean when I say that I'm not good at resting. And ironically, that's why I wanted to speak today. Not so much because I am a hypocrite, which I am, um, but because we need the good news. I need the good news spoken to me. I need the discipline of Sabbath rest that the Scriptures give us, and so do you. You need external rest on the outside, and you need internal rest on the inside as a fallen human being and as a Christian, a renewed human. So this week we're going to conclude our series in the spiritual disciplines, and next week we are going to return to the big book of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 18, and then we will run with that until we take a break during Advent, and I think it's appropriate to end the series with rest, to end this series on discipline and spiritual practices so that we don't think that by doing a bunch of good things, by doing these disciplines, that we somehow become good Christians. That's not the way we do. Christianity is primarily about receiving something from God, not doing something for Him. The good news is that your disciplines and your doings are not what makes you right before God. The only thing that can make any of us right before God is something that He has done for us, not something that we do for Him. And so our ultimate rest can only be found in dying to self and in trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. And isn't it interesting that Sabbath rest is a discipline doesn't sound Sabbathy, right? They appear to play off one another as antonyms, not synonyms. If you ask someone, what, what disciplines make up your week? What, what do you do? What happens in the rhythm of your week? You'd probably say something like making sure you run a little bit, maybe go to the gym, maybe not, maybe just walk, go on some walks, read your Bible. But it's not often that we hear, well, I'm really trying to rest, I'm really trying to discipline myself to rest more, to schedule Sabbath regularly. But it's true. We have to train 
ourselves to rest because we are hardwired as restless human creatures. The biblical writer to the Hebrews said, strive to enter God's rest or be diligent to enter His rest. So somehow striving and resting are not at odds. And so what I want to do today is give us a general overarching idea of Sabbath and rest with some scriptures primarily in the Old Testament. And then I want us to focus in on the story of the prodigal son and what that teaches us about rest. So like anything, rest starts with God. God is the first one in the Bible that is said to have rested. And it's not because he's tired. It's not because he's exhausted. He didn't break a sweat in creation. Yet as we heard this morning in Genesis 2, the creator of the universe rests. So what does this mean? The most obvious thing it means is that God stopped the work he was doing. He stopped working. We see that in verse 3 of Genesis 2. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He rested from it. Rest here in the Hebrew means ceasing. He ceased. It's a negative thing. He no longer worked. So it was the thing that God wants to communicate to us that he had worked hard all week, that he went up to heaven, that he grabbed his bag of chips, sat down, exhausted, and just kind of stared off into the space of the universe he created. I don't think it does. Yes, that ceasing is critical. It's there. The work was over. Verse 1 says the heavens and the earth were finished. And verse 2 in chapter 2 says on the seventh day God finished the work that He has done. But the idea here that God was stoic is not the case. It seems that the text wants us to see more than God ceasing and not doing anything. There's this sense of completion. Creation is finished. Creation is whole and holy. God is pleased with what He has made. And this makes sense when we tie the context of that together. If you notice at the beginning of the creation story in chapter 1, after we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, it says the earth is described as formless, empty, without void, dark. So in the days of creation, what God is doing is He's filling the earth. He's filling it with goodness, with light, with blessing and beauty. And so instead of formlessness... The earth is now experiencing fullness. It's complete. The goal has been reached. The project is done. The artist has finished his artwork and is satisfied. So if we notice too that the seventh day actually doesn't get the typical rhythmic pattern that the rest of the six days do. This pattern of evening and morning, which you see as you read the whole chapter. There was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. But that doesn't happen on the seventh day. And it may be that there's this wonderful truth in there that rest, this kind of rest, is actually the point of creation. The point of everything. The day that is said to be holy, the day that is said to be blessed, doesn't have evening and morning. It goes on forever and ever and never ends. Interestingly, since chapter 2, verse 2, says that on the seventh day God finished His work, on the seventh day, he finished his work. Leaving open maybe a slight possibility that God did work something on that day 
And interestingly, some Jewish commentators actually believe that God created something on the seventh day called Manua. And I may have butchered that word. But Manua is a Hebrew word for rest that means happiness and peaceful stillness, like repose. So God ceasing here then could describe God's joyful satisfaction in all that He has done, enjoying what He has made. But is that just a, a read-in that Jewish commentators have, have done? And it may be, but what we begin to see is a more positive idea of Sabbath throughout the Scriptures rather than just this negative idea of stopping, ceasing. This gets fleshed out more in the book of Exodus in the well-known Ten Commandments that God gave His people Israel. At the very end of the fourth commandment, the one that we read again this morning, the reason God gives for why His people must keep Sabbath is because God Himself rested on the seventh day. And this word for rest is slightly different than what is used in Genesis and may carry the idea of refreshment in it. So the rest God is calling for is not simply not doing anything, like just kind of an empty vacuum, but receiving refreshment like a satisfying spring. Later in Exodus, this meaning of God's rest is made even more explicit. If you go to Exodus 31, Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. So Sabbath isn't just about stopping work, but about starting refreshment. God knew that if man kept working all the time, that they would misunderstand something about His very nature about God's nature and that they would end up actually ruining other people and ruining themselves in the process. We see this again in Exodus 23:12 how this relates to other people. Exodus 23:12 6 days you shall do your work but on the 7th day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So God's created beings, animal and human, need to rest. Without rest, we will ruin ourselves and we will abuse other people. So this command to Sabbath was a loving gift that God gave His people. And it was a way that people could actually love their neighbors, could actually love each other. Without a Sabbath, instead of loving others, we will tend to oppress them. We will tend to abuse them. Why? Because we want to be served. I want you to serve me. We want rest for ourselves before we want rest for anybody else. And we're not going to give anybody else a break, even if we need one. And so we'll use power as a means to enslave other people to meet our needs instead of loving them. And so this is huge in getting to the meaning of what Sabbath means in the Bible. True Sabbath is about redemption and refreshment of people for their good. That's what it's for. It's for their good. It's about wholeness. So remember that the Sabbath command and the Ten Commandments came after the Israelites had been what? Had been oppressed. Had been in 
slavery. In fact, all of the Ten Commands that God gives are not meant for God to say, okay, this is a new way to be enslaved. Here's a new way to enslave you. But it's actually about freedom. It's about deliverance. It's about liberty from false gods. What does it say at the beginning that Bob read before? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the Ten Commandments start with grace, start with redemption and liberty. This is who I am. Now this is what I command. So Sabbath is more than just the rhythm and order of creation. It's the place of rhythm and order of redemption. The land of Egypt was a place of enslavement, of endless work for the Israelites over and over again. And what? They were groaning. They were crying out to God, help, help. God heard them. It says at the beginning of Exodus, God heard their groaning. And he sent them Moses. And one of the things that happened when Moses came before Pharaoh in chapter 4 of Exodus was that he asked for God's people to be released to do something, to sacrifice. Release them so that they may go sacrifice. And Pharaoh's response to this no work, this, this event that would take the people of Israel away from work was, no way, I'm going to make them work harder. I'm going to put more burden on them. He increased their burden by taking away the straw that they needed to make bricks. And he had them beaten when they didn't make their daily quota. So you're already enslaved, you're already oppressed, and I'm just going to make this worse. It's what every tyrant does. And so the place of Egypt was a place of no rest with rugged taskmasters because it was a place filled with idolatry. It was a place filled with false gods. One Old Testament scholar that I read tied this reality of endless work to the many gods of Egypt. And one of the primary differences between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt is that they, the false gods, require endless, never-ending productivity. Human work over and over and over again. While the one God of Israel, one God requires rest. You're commanded to do this. So social economics and religion are always linked. Secular society, we like to think, makes us think that that's not true, that we don't have religion. We're just good secularist Americans. But if we are not ruled by the one God, work will rule us. Other things will rule us. We will worship. We will be ruled by the restlessness of false gods, even if that God is us. Me. You must produce in Egypt. You must work for the gods. They aren't about to do anything for you. You have to do something for them. You have to sacrifice to them to hope everything will turn out good for you. And doesn't that sound like idolatry everywhere? All false false gods demand your performance, demand your sacrifice, demand your duties. But this God is different. He calls for rest. No social oppression. You and your servants and your animals got a rest. No religious oppression. I am the God who delivered you from slavery. I free you. And so this note of deliverance and redemption that the Sabbath took on is further clarified in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 25, God actually commands a Sabbath for the land. Not just for the people, but for the land. Where the land would be given rest 
where fields would not have to be sown and vineyards would not be pruned. And in this chapter, we also learn that every seven times seven years, so 49, that on the 50th year, there would be a year of jubilee, a Sabbath year of jubilee for the people of Israel. And in, the, and in that year, their debts would be forgiven. Their property would be returned. Those who were enslaved because of debt would be liberated. Don't oppress your brothers. And so imagine that this year of jubilee would be joyful. I get to go home. I get to go back to my property. All this burden of debt is released and lifted. Financial and social burdens are gone. So there would have been this joy of happiness, of total freedom in the land of the Sabbath jubilee. So, Sabbath is given for our good, for our enjoyment. The God of rest calls us to enter His happy rest in relationship with Him, in relationship with other people, and in relationship with ourselves. One thing that's remarkable to notice is that even Israel's enemies noticed a distinction between the God of Israel and their gods. A uniqueness with this one God. I was reading the other day in Jeremiah, I've been reading in the New Living Translation, and came across this phrase in 57, Jeremiah 57. All who found them, speaking of God's people, all who found them devoured them. Their enemies said, We did nothing wrong in attacking them, for they sinned against the Lord. Their true place of rest and the hope of their ancestors. So a turn away from God is a turn away from rest. Therefore, one of the roots of all sin and all idolatry is trading true rest for false rest. So these snapshots in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Jeremiah show us that Sabbath is about the nature of God Himself and His relationship with His people. That is bound up in the way, in, in the system of the way that creation works and in the way that redemption works. Both of those things are sacred. Both are holy, meaning creation and redemption. But this does not mean that Sabbath is get serious. Instead, God desires that we receive rest with satisfaction, with refreshment and joy. It's a gift for our enjoyment. If we take the celebration out of Sabbath and concentrate just on what not to do and all these stoppages and all these ceasings, we miss something about the nature of God and the nature of His Word to us. And it becomes anything but restful. One of our problems as human beings is that we have an inner restlessness that longs to be satisfied. Without exception, every human, no matter what, has this inner restlessness that longs to be satisfied. Philosophers for centuries have wrestled with anxiety. Death is coming. How should I live? How should I think? They've tried to figure out how to explain life in light of death and life with or without God. So humanity has been on this hunt for some kind of meaning and carries within it a sense of homelessness, craving for something more. And we think we'll be refreshed by anything other than God. Right? So we pursue our rest, our satisfaction, our joy, our delight in other things, in our desires, or 
we take up religion. We use God as a way to be satisfied in our own strivings, our own performance. And both of these will kill us. Both of these are not good for us. The early church father Augustine wrote, You have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. So this is where Jesus' story of the prodigal son comes in. And then before we read this passage, uh, we need to set the stage and see who Jesus is talking to. So go to Luke 15. Luke 15, 1 and 2 reveal that Jesus' audience features supposed righteous and unrighteous people. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So you got the bad guys, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the good guys, the Pharisees and the scribes, in the crowd. Jewish insiders and sinful, Jewish, and sinful Gentile outsiders gathering around Jesus. And the parables Jesus is about to tell this mixed group is actually not primarily directed against the sinners, the tax collectors, the immoral, but it's directed toward the religious leaders, the super Sabbath keepers who have turned their relationship with God into performance, who have used it to try to burden other people. And so Jesus is about to confront their misunderstanding of his father, of the God of Abraham. And this is something that the religious were getting used to, right? One of the things that the religious leaders of the day misunderstood was Sabbath rest. And so they used to try to try to catch Jesus in breaking the Sabbath. They, they seem to latch on to the ceasing, the not doing of the Sabbath as the main point of it and not to enjoy this refreshment and restoration that the Sabbath actually implied. And so throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees and the scribes went after Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. In their mind, he was breaking the rules. So according to them, Sabbath was about not doing anything. You can't go around healing people. That's breaking the Sabbath. So it wasn't about doing something. It's about not doing. But according to Jesus, it was about restoration, refreshment of humanity. Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so when that gets flipped, every single thing goes wrong. It trades duty for delight. It binds men and women to the externals of the law rather than the intention of the law. And so God gave Sabbath to man to make men whole on the inside and the outside, not just to make them these external law keepers who follow this code. So healing, the healing and benefit of man is what the Sabbath is about. So when we come to Luke 15, we have Jesus correcting the attitudes of these devout people. The religious are in the crowd grumbling, complaining, murmuring, to use the old word, looking down their noses at the sinners. And Jesus replies to their concerns with a story. 
That's both a backhanded rebuke and an invitation into true joy. So instead of telling a story that is an indictment of sinful people before a father who actually wants to separate and get away from sinful people, he tells a story that indicts all of them, all the saints and all the sinners, and portrays God as a father who's actually more extreme in his mercy than we are extreme in our sinning, whatever kind of sinning that may be. And so Jesus calls both the righteous and the wretched to experience the love of the Father who wants to welcome everybody into a party. So let's read that, Luke fifteen eleven to 32. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Hey, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's God's Word. There's so much here, but... um, We're not going to go verse by verse. I just want to grab some things for us to chew on in light of this discipline of Sabbath rest. I want us to look at these three characters mentioned in verse 11. So verse 11, two sons and a man who is their father. And when we look at them through this lens of rest, we find that one of the points of the story is to show us that all of us must die to our inner restlessness of seeking our rest of soul by satisfying sinful desires and 
or seeking rest of soul by our performance, our religious works. So the first paragraph, verses 11 to 16, reveal that the younger son is tired of being in dad's house. He's anxious to get out from under his father, to get what's his. And so instead of enjoying his dad's wealth in the place and context that he should enjoy it, he wants to take dad's wealth and run away to a far country, way away from his father. Now this would be a massive insult in Greco-Roman and Jewish culture. The book of Deuteronomy talked about kids who disobey, disobey their parents get stoned. And the Gentiles, some even found it worthy of imprisonment. So what the son is essentially saying is, you're better dead, dad. Give me your inheritance. Give me your wealth. I, I want to enjoy my life. I don't want to be here with you anymore. I don't want to wait till you die. So his dad gives it to him. And notice, he gives it to him at great cost to himself. He divides up his estate. And what we actually can't see in our translations is that while the son asks for property, the word that he uses, the father is said to give up his bios, his very life. And so the restless son leaves his father's house. What does he do? He recklessly spins it. He spends the money of his father however he likes, probably thinking that he's going to get what he wants. He's going to get satisfaction under his own terms. He believes that by being the ruler of his own restless heart, that he will get what he craves, whatever money can buy. But what happens? He ends up squandering his wealth, squandering everything that the father gave him. And so you see, this is what we do as sinners. We pursue joy outside the Father's house. He's given us the gift of life. And we think we need something else than what He has given. And instead of getting what we think we need, we end up in great need. We think we can rule ourselves and our desires, but our desires end up ruling us. And so the lost son is no longer the son in a wealthy house, but a bankrupt nobody in slavery to someone else. A pig farmer, no less. Pigs. Again, a cultural awareness brings color to the story. Jesus is saying that the younger son who feeds unclean pigs is as an unclean Gentile. He's an outsider. He's an outcast. He's a loser. He is getting what he deserved. He's utterly desperate. He's swimming in the consequences of his sin. So, to use our terms, he's hit rock bottom. That's where this son is. And in many places, in many ways, this is the very best place that we can possibly be. See, if we jump ahead in the story to the third paragraph, starting in verse 25, we find the elder brother And that the elder brother is actually in a more dangerous spot. No, he's not an unrighteous sinner lost in this far country, way away. But 
he thinks he's righteous and he's actually lost in his dad's house. He too is lost. His sinful restlessness was not to wish his dad dead and to leave, but to work for his dad as if he was working for a rugged slave master, a taskmaster. Notice the way he talks to his father in verse 29. I like the way the Revised English Bible said this. You know how I have slaved for you all these years? I never once disobeyed your orders. I. So it's all about him. What he's done. His hard work. And so any religion that is all about you and your work is false religion. Any Christianity, any version of Christianity that puts your obedience, your work, your self-justification before God is not Christianity. It's false. There's no self-justification in the Gospel. All of our, look how I served you, God. I never once did that. All of that is worthless. Because it's still all about us. It reveals that we view ourselves wrong. And more importantly, it reveals that we view the Father wrong. So the restlessness of the older brother is also in his resentment. He resents how the father treats the younger son. He thinks he's better. He deserves more. And so he refuses to go into the party in his dad's house. And he has a party of his own outside. A pity party. Self-pity. He's going to stay outside. He's going to wallow in his own self-righteousness. You never gave me a young goat. You never let me celebrate with my friends. And this guy comes, this son of yours, so not my brother, this son of yours comes, and he's with prostitutes. Now, whether that was true or not, we don't know. That's what he's saying, though. He's devouring your property, all this cash with prostitutes, and you kill the fatted calf for him. You wouldn't even give me a goat. And you give the best to him. So, wah, 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 right? Hidden resentment, jealousy, is the suicide of the self-righteous. It's not as obvious as the external behavior of the younger brother who just says, I'm out of here, you're dead to me, I'm gone, and just makes a wreck of his life. It's not that obvious, but it becomes obvious when it gets pent up for all those years. All that kind of hidden resentment, jealousy, anger. You're this kind of God. You're this kind of Father. Look what I'm doing. And then it just bursts. Everywhere. So which one are you? The restless son who leaves the father's house to enjoy himself or the restless older son who stays in his father's house to prove himself? Which one are you? Which one do you tend toward? True rest and true satisfaction only come when we turn away from ourselves and get to know the character, the nature of the father. That's how we find true rest. If we take these two legs of the story, the first one and the third one, we see that neither son enjoyed the rest and celebration of the father's house. Why? Because they didn't know his nature. They didn't know who he really was. And so you and I will never know the rest and the joy that the father longs to give us until we see him as that kind of father. Gracious, compassionate, the kind of dad who welcomes every type of sinner, each brother into his party, and into 
the enjoyment of all the rights and privileges that that son has. So this parable is more about the love of the father than the issues of his sons. The middle paragraph in verse 17 is where, of course, we get this beautiful picture. Has a son waking up to his senses. I love that. Waking up to his senses. Realizing that things were way better in his dad's house than they are now. He sees his own sin, right? He sees his unworthiness. He tastes the bitterness of his actions. He's tired. He's worn out. He wants to go home, even if he's a slave. Even if he has to go be a slave for his dad. And so, he crafts exactly what he's going to say to his dad, so his dad will get him back. But, his speech, he doesn't get much of a chance to say it. Instead of a reluctant father that he presumes, he returns home to a waiting father, a welcoming father. The kind of dad who runs to sinners, not away from them. Again, what the Pharisees are doing. Not away from them, but to them. While they're a long way off. He's a long way off and the father sees him and he runs. Embraces him, showers him with kisses. I love again how the Revised English Bible puts verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. He ran to meet him. He flung his arms around him and kissed him. And so he is embraced. Before he even gets to confess, the father has embraced him. And instead of shaming his son, he shames himself. Fathers don't run in that culture. Fathers with big robes and everything don't pick up their robes and take off and run with their bare legs. Yet here, the father is making a fool of himself, running out to meet his son who wasted everything he gave him. The father restores him with sonship, with a robe, with a ring, with sandals, all of which have deep meaning. He kills the fatted calf and throws him a party. So there's no penance here. There's no penance for the lost son. He's back in the family entirely. All the way. And not just casually, but with celebration. You're back in. Welcome. And so this would have been a shock not only to the elder brother, but to the village as a whole. The Jewish village in some cases, would have performed a ceremony for a returning son who wasted his inheritance in and among the Gentiles and they would have cut him off from the community. But the father performs a different kind of ceremony, right? A ceremony of welcome. You're fully in. You're not just kind of in. You're not just a servant in the house. You're all the way in the house. He performs a ceremony of honor, grace, forgiveness. And so the son's conscience can rest in the joy of his father. And so can yours. So can mine. But there's another son who's on the outside of the party. He's the one now who's on the outside. So, what does the father do? He goes and gets him. That's what this kind of father is. He wants him 
to join the party. And a hug and a kiss isn't going to work for this distant son, right? He's far too serious. So he entreats him. That's what verse 28 says. He begs, he pleads with his son earnestly to come inside, to enjoy the food, the music, the laughter, the dancing. He tells his son compassionately, My boy, said the father, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. How could we fail to celebrate this happy day? And so even though the older brother doesn't want to be identified with his younger brother, the father reaffirms that he is his son. So you don't want to identify with your brother, but I'm going to completely identify with you. You're my boy. You're my son. You too can have all the rights and privileges of this house. And this is where we're left hanging. We don't know what happened to the older brother. Why? Well, because Jesus is asking the religious. You going to join the party? Or are you going to sit here grumbling and complaining about all the sinners? Or are you going to come in? Are you going to enter into the rest and the joy that I have for you? And so we will never enjoy Sabbath rest. We will never enjoy God until we see Him like this. So our Father right now in this place is asking us how to rest. Are you going to rest? Are you going to enjoy my grace? How do we do it? We have to die. We have to die to our sinful and religious strivings. We have to die to ourselves and accept someone else's work. I love what Tim Keller talks about, how there's another older brother in the story, and it's the one telling the story. There's another older brother who left home, left the father's house, but instead of doing things out of duty or doing things to spend things on his own pleasures, he delighted to do his father's will all the way to die and to rise again. He left his home in heaven to go to the far country to save sinners. And Jesus, in a way, is the fatted calf prepared to die so that we can celebrate, so that we can celebrate this rest that he has won for us. So we have to labor to believe this because I don't believe it. (laughs) I mean, really believe it. We have to be diligent to enter into this rest. We will never know how to rest in life if we don't experience this kind of love. We can take as many days off as we want. We can schedule as many new as new things or rest or we can retire and we can still be slaves. We can still not see the Father the way we should. And so we need to practice rest by reminding ourselves that our God is a God who promises rest and fulfillment for all of his sons, no matter what kind you are. And so quickly, I'm just going to give you five practices that we can do. Because I know in the first sermon I tried to be practical. Um, but of course, that's part of our nature, right? We've got to get practical with this and go do something with it. And it's just saying, no, look at the Father. So, the first most important thing we do is we preach this to ourselves. That's what we do. We have to hammer these truths into our head. We have to believe the good news of who God is and what He's done. Another less important thing we can do is literally take time off. Literally Sabbath. 
schedule rest. And again, that doesn't just mean stopping the nine to five, but schedule things you enjoy. Do things that actually make you happy. And not just spiritually happy. That's what we do. We try to reduce this to, to spiritualness. Do things that make you happy. What do you enjoy? What, what refuels you? Enjoy the gifts God gives. Third thing we can do, we can turn off devices, TVs, smartphones, iPads. You can find all kinds of articles on the internet about how that just contributes to anxiety and comparison and all other kinds of things. Four, look to relieve oppression. We've learned that about Sabbath. How can we relieve oppression, spiritual oppression, like supporting gospel outreach, supporting the church, supporting missionaries, but also the way we physically oppress ourselves as a society, whether helping natural disaster situations, adoption, world vision, all kinds of different things. And number five, what we're going to do now, take communion. That's how you practice rest. You remind yourself that you're not here to give something to God. You're here to receive something from Him. We enter His rest when we renounce our own unrighteous and self-righteous sins and receive as a gift His body and His blood broken for us. And that this is actually a party. It's foreshadowing a party. The wedding supper of the Lamb with abundant wine and food more tangible and tasty than anything that we will ever taste today. So that's what we're going to do.
thorns on your brow. They tell me how you bore so much shame to love me. And when the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain. And forever Luke twenty two fourteen and when the hour came he Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God he took a cup and when he had given thanks he said take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. In my blood. Amen. Will you please stand?